1: I mentioned in the episode on 1 Timothy chapter 2 that many consider that chapter to be the most controversial chapter in the entire New Testament. And chapter 3 also contains a few issues which are debated within the wider church. But thankfully, here in chapter 4, we enter into some reasonably smooth waters. John Stott summarizes usefully here. He says, here are the two topics which Paul develops. First, How false teaching may be detected and exposed in spite of its plausibility, verses 1 to 10. And secondly, how true teaching may be commended and endorsed in spite of Timothy's youth, 4.11 to 5.2. I think that is basically true. Paul has spent a few chapters setting things back in order. He has pushed out a few things that needed to be pushed out and built up a few things that needed to be built up. And now having done so, he begins to turn his attention to the ongoing situation in Ephesus. There is a false doctrine making the rounds and there is a concern inside the church that Timothy is just too young and too timid to meet that challenge. So Paul speaks to that doctrine and he tells Timothy what he can do to commend himself and the life-giving gospel that he preaches. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received With thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul says, first of all, in this section that we are not to be surprised by the presence of false and deficient versions of the Christian faith. Wherever the true grain of the gospel is to be found, we should expect an onslaught of weeds. No one is allowed to be surprised by that, and no one should be terribly distressed by that. It is par for the course. The devil has not gone to sleep. Jesus told us what his game was, and so we expect him to be quite busy right alongside of us as we sow our seed into the world. And the devil has been at work in Ephesus, apparently. He has sown a particular type of seed into that soil. Paul says that its human purveyors are forbidding marriage and the eating of certain foods. Many scholars identify this as a sort of early Gnosticism. Donald Guthrie, for example, says the false teachers insisted on two prohibitions—marriage and the eating of certain foods— There is no doubt that these point to an incipient Gnosticism with its dualistic view of matter, which found its climax in the heretical teachers of the early second century. Now, not all the commentators are as forceful in that analysis as Guthrie is, but everyone seems to agree that this false teaching is the sort of thing that became full-blown Gnosticism by the second century. Gnosticism was the idea that there is a strong distinction between spirit and matter. Matter is bad and spirit is good. Now, interestingly, there were two strains of this particular false teaching. In one strain, they said that because matter was bad and spirit was good, then it didn't really matter what you did with your body. You could have sex with whomever you like. You could be drunk all the time. It didn't really matter as long as your spirit was rightly related to God. Others took the opposite approach. They said that because matter was bad and spirit was good, then if you were a spiritual person, you shouldn't have anything to do with matters of the flesh. You shouldn't get married and you shouldn't eat meat. It was this variety of early Gnosticism that seems to have been sown in Ephesus. Paul says that we know it is nonsense because it simply does not accord with what we see in the Bible. There is no dualism in the Bible at all. How does the Bible begin? With the story of creation. God created the world, the world of matter, and he said that it was good. Well if God says that it's good then why would you listen to anyone who says that it isn't good for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving Now here we can spot a connection between chapter 4 and chapter 2 In chapter 2 it seems that there were some people who thought that redemption essentially obliterated the created order it destroyed and completely did away with the created distinction between men and women, which they must have understood as intrinsically wrong. But here we see Paul again affirming that redemption doesn't destroy creation, it restores creation. Redemption is about putting us back into the position of receiving gratefully from God whatever God gives for us to enjoy. Now, some Bible readers get confused here because they might remember that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to commend celibacy, whereas here he seems to commend marriage. So which is it? George Knight is helpful here. He says, although Paul commended singleness as an estate in which one could give more time and energy directly to serving the Lord, he always insisted that marriage was not wrong and that God had indeed gifted many to marry. Closed quote. That's very helpful. And it reminds us to be on the lookout for people who turn coulds into shoulds and mays into musts. The Bible says that a person may choose singleness or may choose marriage according to the gift God Gives. Likewise, the Bible says that you can choose to eat only vegetables if you wish, but beware of people who mandate that you eat only vegetables. Beware of anyone who mandates what the Bible does not mandate. Beware of those who go beyond what is written. Beware of the super spiritual who want to be holier and more restrictive than the Bible. That is a form of false teaching that the devil has designed to ensnare the arrogant and naturally religious, and it has entangled a great many people over the ages. If God gives it, and if the Bible permits it, then we are free to receive it with thanksgiving unto the Lord. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. In these verses, Paul encourages Timothy to preach the truths that Paul has just commended and also to pursue authentic godliness as opposed to the false asceticism of those who have lost their way and who are presently troubling the church. To say that there is a bad way of being religious is never enough. You have to show people the right way. And that's what Paul is encouraging here. He combines good teaching and a good example again in the next two verses. Look at verses 11 and 12. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's the way to combat error in your church. Command and teach the truth and set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. The best way for the young minister to earn credibility in the church is to preach the truth and to live the truth before the eyes of those who are watching. If they see that you are diligently drawing out the teachings of the Bible and if they see that you are applying to yourself the same truths that you are applying to them, Well then, pretty soon, no one will care how old you are, and that issue will go away on its own. That's excellent advice for all of us, and particularly for those young in the ministry. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Here Paul has a word to say about the proper priorities of the public ministry. When you gather together for worship, whatever else you may do, make sure you give proper attention to this, to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Those three terms together supply a very useful definition of expository preaching. It is sometimes said that expository preaching involves three simple steps, read the text, explain the text, apply the text, and then repeat as necessary. And we see all of those emphases in verse 13. To teach is to explain. To exhort is to encourage people towards application and obedience. Now, concerning the precise nature of the scriptures that are to be read, George Knight is once again very helpful here. He says that the reading would be of those writings that were regarded as authoritative and in addition to the Old Testament would include extant New Testament writings, quote. Now, of course, the whole New Testament hadn't been written as of the time of 1 Timothy. That ought to be fairly obvious. But just as obvious is the fact that Paul expected the letters that he wrote to one church to be written and received as authoritative in other churches. So, for example, we see him saying to the Colossians in Colossians 4.16, "...when this letter has been read among you, have it also read..." in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Paul clearly considered his letters to be a proper subject for the public reading in the corporate worship service. Likewise, the apostle Peter commends the letters of the apostle Paul to his people and refers to them as scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. So a typical church service at that time would have included a reading from the Old Testament or from an apostolic writing followed by explanation and application, and the same basic pattern should still be followed in the church of Jesus Christ today. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself And on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul here refers back to a special time in Timothy's life when he was publicly given a spiritual gift toward the work of the ministry that God had assigned to him. The very public nature of the giving of this gift would have been a special encouragement to this young and apparently timid man. Nevertheless, this gift must be diligently developed in order for it to be used in the way that God intended. Donald Guthrie says very helpfully again here, although the word gift draws attention to the part played by the Holy Spirit in Timothy's ministry, the exhortation not to neglect it brings out equally emphatically the human responsibility. God's gifts, like the talent, must never be left unused." So, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I'm often asked whether preachers are made or born, and I always reply that it is both. Certainly, you have to have the gifts, but just as certainly, you have to put in the time and effort. A gifted man who refuses to study is a danger to his congregation. And likewise, probably it is unwise for a person to push themselves forward into the preaching ministry if they don't have the requisite gifts. We are what God has made us to be, and each of us must diligently work with the gifts that God has given us, and we must not waste time and energy wishing we had gifts and a calling that we do not have. Life is too short, and souls are too precious for us to be troubled by envy, Restricted by fear or hindered by laziness and sloth, wherever God has put you and whatever gifts he has given you, give yourself to that place and diligently develop those gifts for the good of his people and the glory of his name forever. For by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Remember, we saw something very similar back in chapter 2. In 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul said about the woman, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What's he saying there? And what is he saying to Timothy here? Well, of course, he's not saying that Timothy will earn his salvation by persisting in pastoral ministry. He's simply saying that the challenges of pastoral ministry will be the context in which Timothy exercises, displays, refines, and ultimately proves his faith in the Lord. Just as very often, raising children will be the context in which many women will exercise, display, refine, and ultimately prove their faith in the Lord. Remember, faith is obeying God even when it hurts. Faith is following Christ even though he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. Pastoral ministry can feel like that sometimes. And so, of course, can mothering. But in both cases, if you trust the Lord and if you persist in these difficult things, you will save yourself and your hearers. Thanks be to God.
0: Once again, that's IntoTheWord.ca. We hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into The Word.